right. You can find your seats and stand with me as we read God's Word. We are reading from Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1 through 13. Let's pray. Lord, we're certainly reminded uh, that you cause rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And as we experience this uh, blessing of uh, water and rain, I pray that it uh, reminds us of all the spiritual blessings that you've given to us in Christ, that it's overflowing. Uh, that it's that it's unending, and that it's and that it's ours, and that you've given it to us by your grace, and that we're reminded that um, uh, that you take away and that you give, and everything that we hold uh, dear is all a gift from you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, No money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Our desire each week is for... Christ to be seen and known and worshipped here and not to draw attention to ourselves. In fact, part of our prayer 
for all of us that are up here on the platform or involved in the worship service, part of our prayer is that we would to some degree be invisible. But I have to say, I just love the violin. Do you, do you, do you like, did you hear that violin? You hear it a little bit? I, I could just sit and listen to the violin for a long time this morning. Any other violin? Uh, like you could just sit here. Like maybe some of you are saying, yeah, Mike, why don't you sit down? And we could just have, just have the violin come up and we could just sit and just worship. And I, I, I could do that. But uh, I do have responsibility to preach and we are going to hear a sermon. But I, I, I could do that some Sunday. Just listen and, and, and just meditate on the Lord and just, and just worship Him. We are on a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the foundational things, one of the verses that jumps off the page uh, to me in the Gospel of Mark goes back to Mark chapter 1, where Jesus comes upon uh, Peter and Andrew, and he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of women, fishers of boys, fishers of girls. This is not the call to apostolic ministry really here. This is Jesus calling them to follow him and to make them fishers of men, to make them, instead of their primary calling, their vocation, being fishermen, being the primary thing they're going to do, they may or may not continue doing that, but their main thing in life is to find human beings and help them to become followers of Jesus. Now, when we read the Bible, we want to read it in that ancient context where this applied to these two individuals in that historical setting. But this passage also applies to us. We have to read this as a reader in the year 2017, and the Lord wants to make you and wants to make me fishers of men and women and boys and girls. Our mission, the mission that he has given to all of us, is to make disciples. Whether we are young and in school, whether we are in the middle of our vocational life, whether we are retired, whether we think this way or not, if we are a follower of Jesus, he has given us a mission, and that mission is to make disciples. To both reach people that don't know the Lord with the gospel and to grow people up in him uh, this this uh, calling here is is repeated in many different ways in different words and various gospels at the end of matthew's gospel of course we have the most famous great commission therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything i have commanded you and i will be with you always to the end of the age that is our mission we sometimes overemphasize the, the go part, and we, we can get into this missionary mentality that, that our job is to, to write checks and support people that are actually going to go places and, and make disciples, and we somehow are, are out of that, and, and other people do that. That is not the case at all. That Great Commission emphasizes you and I making disciples as we go about our lives. You could translate it, going about, make disciples, You get the emphasis before we get into today's text of of where we're going. We're going to see a variety of characteristics of what it looks like to, to, to live out Christianity in a missional way. To take seriously this responsibility of making fishers of men and of women and of children and anyone that we encounter as we go about our everyday stuff of life. 
I'm, I'm going to share a, a story here, and I got permission from Cindy to s- share this, so let me just draw attention to her, and we can get beyond that. Everybody say hi to Cindy back there. Wait, wait. Cindy, put your hand up. Everybody see Cindy? So we are called to make disciples in, in the everyday stuff of life that we do. And so Thursday, Cindy, and uh, again, she gave me permission. You know, when I ever say, whenever I say things like this, I want to let you know I get permission. So you don't have to worry. They're like, is he going to break in and start talking about something that I did this week or, or whatever? Uh, I, I'm going to get permission from you before, uh, before I do that. Cindy's on a flight after she's visiting family on Thursday. She's on her way back here from Southern California. And she's sitting next to another believer, someone that she didn't know before. And that believer... Both of these people are, are on mission, as it were, and are, are doing the work of, of making people fishers of men. Discipleship, we can, we can draw it into two categories of reaching people with the gospel and building people up in Christ. Evangelism and edification, if you will. And they are both uh, doing that just as they're going about their business on the airplane. And so they begin to talk. And the, and the woman that Cindy is sitting next to is coming up here in order to spend time and witness to someone who has been battling cancer for a long time. And in our state now, you, you have uh, the, the uh, possibility of physician-assisted suicide. You know that? You know that, church? And so this is a kind of thing that we might be involved in. And so this woman is flying up here as a believer to share and witness with her friend who was scheduled uh, physician-assisted suicide to end her life after lots and lots of suffering on Friday. And so Cindy is, is engaging and, and encouraging this woman, and, and she ends up giving her my number, and I end up talking with her on the phone and praying with her. And she's coming up here in order to spend time in witness with this person. I, I, I'm simply giving you an example of, of what it means to be a disciple-maker, to be on mission in life. And it's happening on an airplane. This woman came up here. She sent me an email back. This, you know, this woman went through with this procedure, but she said the Lord was with her as she sat with her and prayed with her. And, and as she was in this process of being obedient to what God has called us to do in the everyday stuff of life, making people who are fishers of men and making disciples. So I'm, I'm, as we approach our text today, we're going to see, as Jesus is sending out these 12, two by two, we're going to see various characteristics that you and I need God's grace in order for us to live out a missional life in our everyday stuff that we're doing, like Cindy was doing on the airplane or wherever we are uh, in life. Are you with me so far this morning, church? All right. So let's get into our text. We are in uh, Mark chapter 6, and let me just begin in the middle of verse 6. Uh, Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, right in the middle. It says there that then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So let's just stop here for a moment. Those of you that weren't here last week, we saw that Jesus uh, had been, most of his ministry had been happening in the northern area of the Sea of Galilee. I've got a big uh, modern day map here. You can see Israel and Jordan and Syria. And I've got an arrow there pointing to the Sea of Galilee, which probably a lot of you can't even see that. Can you see the Sea of Galilee? It's not much of a sea. We probably wouldn't call it a sea. We would call it a lake. If we zoom in a little bit further, most of Jesus' ministry has been happening in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. But in last week's passage, he traveled uh, to his hometown in Nazareth. 
And he was rejected there. They were taking offense at him. At Capernaum, the crowds are swarming him. He's not able to even move because so many people are seeking him out, wanting to hear his teaching and wanting his healing. But in Nazareth, they take offense at him. They don't understand how this boy that we saw growing up in this town could teach this way. He didn't go to seminary. He hasn't been following a rabbi for a decade. How is he doing these things? And so instead of the people being amazed at Jesus, Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. But take a look back to our text here in verse 6. This doesn't stop his ministry and the ministry of the disciples. So Jesus goes around teaching from village to village in spite of the rejection that has just happened. And the disciples, the 12, are about to do the same thing. So the first, and we're going to go through these quickly, but the first of eight I have, eight qualities of missional Christianity is resiliency. We are going to experience opposition to the gospel, with opposition to the word of God, with opposition to God himself. To, uh, we're going to experience opposition in a variety of ways. Jesus experienced that. The disciples experienced that. But by God's grace, we ask him to help us to keep going. So resiliency is the first thing I want to draw out from this passage. Now, one of the most encouraging people for me in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul when it comes to resiliency. Let me just read a little bit to you from Acts chapter uh, 21. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. Uh, and think about the resiliency that this guy has in being on mission in the everyday stuff of life. Now, Paul was kind of one of those exceptions. Most of us, God doesn't call to cross an ocean or to cross a culture with the gospel. He calls us to simply live out the gospel and love others around us in the everyday stuff of life. Paul's an exception that that went all kinds of places. But listen to this uh, resiliency. Let, Let me just read a little bit of this to you from Acts chapter 21. The context here is in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 30, it says, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So you got a picture of what's going on here. Paul's getting beaten. There is a riot in the city. And this commander wants simply to take Paul and to get him to safety, as it were, by, by taking him uh, to prison. The crowd that's following is shouting, away with him. So just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. I mean, I'm ready to go to jail at this point. You know, people are, are wanting to kill me. The, there's a riot in the city. And I, I'm, I'm like, thank you, Commander. I'll be very happy to uh, waive whatever rights I need to be and get me behind these bars. I mean, that, that, that's, if I put myself in Paul's shoes, that's kind of how I would respond. So here's how Paul responds. So he says to the Commander, uh, may I say something to you? And they begin to have this conversation, and they work out what language they're going to speak in. And then in verse 39, Paul, uh, Paul says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. (laughs) Please let me talk to them. 
the ones who are trying to kill me, the ones that are rioting, the ones that are going crazy. Let me talk to them. What does he want to talk to them about? He wants to talk to them about Jesus. This is how driven he is. This is how responsible he is with this great commission and with this mission to make fishers of men. And so I'm praying right now, even for myself and for you, that God would give us a dose by his grace of the kind of resiliency that we see in Jesus, that we see in the 12, we see them waffling a lot, actually, but that we're going to see in them right here. uh, I'm praying right now that God would give each of us a degree of that resiliency. Uh, Are some of you with me? Are you longing to, to be able to make disciples and to stand up for the gospel, even when we've experienced rejection or mockery or what have you. So this is just out of the first part of this verse. Let me say, I said I'm going to move through these quickly, so let's go. Um, Let's move on to uh, verse 7. So they're traveling from village to village in verse 6. In spite of what's happened, they're in the area of Nazareth now. And then verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two. So he sends them in pairs. So here, Um, the the word is the characteristic or the quality of missional Christianity is plurality or community. That that in order to be missional, in order to be disciple-making people, we are designed to do this together. That doesn't mean that we don't ever do something alone, but it means that we do it as a community. We do it together, and he he sent them out in pairs, two by two, the 12. So he's calling the 12, the 12 apostles to him, and he sends them out, Two by two. This principle of plurality or of team leadership is uh, present throughout the scriptures. Could put a variety of verses up here, but Deuteronomy 19 says this. It says, one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We have a whole new covenant coming. We have a whole new gospel coming. And this matter is going to be established by witnesses. And so he sends them out by two, and throughout the entire New Testament, we see this emphasis on community, this emphasis on plurality, this emphasis on shared leadership. This is something that I value and that we as a church value very much. This is why I I want lots of you using your gifts up here if you're musical, making announcements, doing a variety of things. The Lord wants us, not just on Sunday mornings, but in all capacities, to share are to share leadership and to use the gifts that we have. So I'm uh, coaching basketball this uh, season. It's been uh, fun. It's been some work. We just had some of our uh, our first few games here. My son Mark is uh, on my team, and I've uh, been reminded as I'm thinking about this characteristic of plurality that that ministry or missional Christianity is more like basketball than it is like golf. We have any golfers here? I'm going to kind of slam golf a little bit, okay? So, so golf, um, I, I used to golf, but uh, not, not anymore so much. Uh, not, not so much anymore at all. But golf, it's just you. It's just you. There's no team. It's just you and that ball. Whether you whiff it, whether you strike it beautifully and it just goes, it is, it is all you. It's just you alone and the ball and there's this whole etiquette where it's got to be quiet, it's got to be silent. If there's a crowd or you're in competition, there's all these people, everybody gets quiet. I mean, it's just all you, you are alone in that ball. In basketball, we have, we have help. We have help. So if I'm playing defense and my man's fast and he goes around me, I scream help. And I got four guys to come and help me. And Jesus has designed us 
to, as disciple makers to be kind of like a, a team. It is a team sport. We need one another's prayer support, even when we don't know the people. Cindy, can I talk to you again? So you and that lady, you, you were like a team, the two of you on the airplane. As she's going to do gospel witness work up here, got on a plane to do it. Just a beautiful thing. We need one another, plurality. So we see that. Okay, in verse 7. Back to uh, verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two, and he gave them authority over evil spirits. So we have resiliency, we have plurality, and then number three, we have authority. We have authority. He, he gave them authority over evil spirits. Now, I'm not saying that you and I as believers today have the equivalent or exact kind of authority that the apostles have, that the 12 have. I don't have the gift of apostleship the way I understand the New Testament. You don't have the gift of apostleship. So we don't have the exact same authority that the apostles had. But we have all the authority we need to make disciples, to, to love our neighbors because Christ is with us. We have all the authority. I've already referenced the Great Commission, but let's just take a look at it again. Let me make a couple comments on it. Again, I was emphasizing this word go. It's not, it, it doesn't really work in English to translate it this way. It, it's not good readable English, but it could be translate going. As you go about, therefore, make disciples. That's the main verb here. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. I am with you. Our authority is through this promise that Christ is with us always. Is it going to end at any time? No, till the end of the age, until he comes back. He is with his church. He is with me as an individual in this journey of making disciples, of making fishers of men, of women, of boys and girls. So we're looking as we read the word of God, we want to think about the ancient context, but we also want to think about what God how God wants me to apply this passage to my life today. We have to do both of these things. So I'm emphasizing this second part, applying this passage today. That's why I'm looking for these characteristics of what missional Christianity is about. That's why I've organized this message this way. So resiliency, plurality or team ministry, authority. God is with us. To what degree is he with us? How much authority do we actually have? All the authority that we need. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Those of you that work in certain environments or in certain places, you feel the pressure of the world, especially when you are alone. I'm sure the, the, the woman, um, the believer that was on the plane with Cindy, she felt alone and having to travel all the way up here. She, she, her friend who's, who was not a believer, who's about to take her own life and, and who actually went through with that on Friday, she uh, talked to me, and when I was on the phone with her, uh, bef- right before she, she went in there, she was kind of wanting a pastor or someone to be there, and I said, the Lord Jesus is with you. He is with you, and he will help you and give you the words to say, and she said they had a, a beautiful time of prayer. I got an email from her afterward. So we have a promise as we go about disciple making that the Lord is with us, and this is where our authority comes from. It doesn't come from our knowledge. Uh, mostly doesn't come from how much experience we have. The disciples are really green here at this point. It comes by Christ being with us. 
This is out of verse 7. Let's come back to the uh, text here. Let's look at verse 8. So these are his instructions. These were, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. All right, that's verse 8. And let's look at verse 9. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. So, you know, I'm a backpacker. So this is, this is super minimalist backpacking here, okay? The, the, the gear list here, did, did, you, did you catch it all? So no, no visa, no American Express, uh, no money, no food, no bag, no backpack, uh, no money, wear sandals, not even an extra tunic or two tunics, some of, some of the translations say, meaning not like uh, pajamas, basically, not another long shirt. Don't even take that. Sandals and a staff. Now, it would be absurd to think that that's what we need for ministry today. Anybody, anybody bring their staff uh, this morning or their sandals? Definitely not with this weather, right? We know intuitively this is not a passage for all time on how we are to do ministry. So this is what I'm saying. We need to read the passage in the ancient context. This is exactly what they were to do. But Lord, how would you have us apply this? How does this characterize our ministry of disciple making? And the issue here is dependency. It's dependency. This is, this is the takeaway for us. We need to depend on God when we are in whatever situations we are in, at work, at school, wherever he takes us in the everyday stuff of life, to love our neighbors, to display the gospel, and then eventually, and Lord willing, to share the gospel verbally with them. We must depend on him. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things because of my training or because of my experience or because I've taken this apologetics class. No, I can do all things through Christ. It's his authority and his presence in me that enables me to do everything. I am dependent on him. John 15, 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, Jesus says, you, church, you can do nothing apart from me. So we are dependent on him. These are the takeaways of what fishing for men looks like in the year 2017. We need God's grace to help us with resiliency, with plurality or uh, community, with authority, with dependency. Let's uh, move on and look at at verse uh, 10. Verse 10. Quiet in here this morning. Where's less? Where's less? We need a substitute less. For those of you who don't know less, less is our amen guy, right? Like I don't normally hear less that much because i he's always going right but today i'm hearing him he's not not back there he had surgery that's right we need to be praying for less all right i got all your attention now so here we are verse 10 some of you can can come uh can can uh, fill in less shoes here and and bring uh amens uh if you'd like so verse 10 whenever you enter a house stay there until you leave that town so this is this is what they are to do when you go to a house Ancient Near Eastern hospitality, generally lots of communities, there aren't hotels, but there would be a, a home that was known that would often take people in, or even homes that weren't known would, would take people in. That's how people rolled back then. So when you enter that house, stay there until you leave that town. Now I want to suggest what the takeaway from this, the characteristic for disciple-making ministry or for missional ministry is integrity. Integrity. 
Here's what I think is, is going on here. One commentator writes this. He says, Jesus gave the instruction in this verse to protect the good reputation of the disciples. Whenever they accepted the hospitality of a home, they were to stay there until they left that town, even if more comfortable or attractive lodgings were offered them. So you can just see what, what, you can just see what would happen here. You know? so, so there's a partnership, two, two of the apostles. They go into a certain village near Nazareth. They go in and they share the message about Jesus and a message of repentance. Those people accept that message. They recognize there's something new coming, this new covenant, this new way, this gospel. They embrace them. And so they set up base camp in that house, that that pair of disciples. And then they travel, you know, next week, uh, next day to this other house. Well, that house, you know, has a pool and a jacuzzi. And it's got a real nice guest house. And they've got a spare car that we can use. And so maybe we should transfer base camp from this house to, to that house, right? But no, Jesus says don't do that. So what's our takeaway from that? What's our takeaway from that? This is what I think we should take away. How do we apply this passage today? Is Jesus against jacuzzis and guest houses and all those things? Well, that's a, a more difficult to answer. You know, it depends on our heart. I'm not going to really so much go there today. But what, what he's getting at here is when it comes to ministry, we want to have the absolute highest standards and be above reproach. So the kind of questions that you and I should be asking ourselves, the kind of question I should be asking myself as I go about my life is not, well, is this okay? Can I, can I get away with that? Is this, is this sinful? That is not the, the spirit of this passage, if you will. The spirit of this passage is how is Jesus going to be most glorified as we do our ministry? How Jesus is going to be most glorified, even though it's not a sin to go and and stay in that house with the jacuzzi and the guest house and the extra car that we could drive. Maybe it was a Tesla. Are those things cool? Are those things cool? Yeah, they are cool. Uh, So so we're attracted to to these kinds of things. But no, that, that is not how we are to conduct ministry so integrity having the highest being above reproach having the highest levels of of integrity is is what should characterize our ministry okay that's verse 10 look at verse uh, 11 verse 11 and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you shake the dust off your feet and when you leave when you leave as a testimony against them so this is interesting verse 11 there, is a lot, there are a lot of critics. This is the kind of verse that they are familiar with in the Bible. People who are against God, against the Bible, against the gospel, against us, as it were. They, they, they know verse 11, a lot of them. And they say, see, what, what, what is it? The Bible is about judging. The Bible is about uh, condemning others. And it, it's just this egotistical, arrogant thing. So if they don't welcome you, you, you shake the dust off your feet and the Bible's all about judgment, and I don't want to have anything to do with that. That is a response that many have to what is going on here in verse 11. So a couple things background to, to verse 11. So there was a development of oral law that came out of the, the written law. Combined, these things are often referred to as Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, or the, uh, the, first, the law itself. Around that, an oral law developed that was written down eventually in the late 2nd century. And so this is one of the things that was written down in this oral law that developed in Jewish culture 
uh, written down in the late second century, but this oral law goes, goes way back. And it says, the dust of Syria pollutes as does that of alien countries. So there was this idea in ancient Israel that when you traveled outside of the land, outside of this land that God has given us, that you are unclean and you are polluted. So this is just a fact. This is just part of what's uh, going on. Another commentator writes this. He says, It was the custom of pious Jews who who traveled outside of Israel to remove carefully from their feet and clothing all dust of the alien lands in which they had traveled. So this is part of their culture. This is... This is what was going on. And so, so why exactly is Jesus saying this? We, we, we don't find that w- w- in, in Scripture so much. So why is he telling them to do this? So what is going on in this passage with the 12 that he's sending out two by two? This is a prophetic act designed to provoke thought on the part of the rejecting villagers. They are coming with a new message, with a new covenant, with a Messiah that they are pointing these people to. And so they are making a point that if you reject this message, it's, it's not just us. It's not just like traveling somewhere else. You are rejecting this man and this message, and there are massive consequences. In fact, the reader of Mark's gospel learns there are eternal consequences if you reject this. So this isn't designed to be judgment alone. But this is designed to be a way to communicate truth and compassion when we share the gospel with someone. When they reject it, we need to let them know what the implications are of rejecting the gospel or of Jesus. Now, this is hard. This is hard. But this is what God calls us to. He calls us to let people know what the Bible actually teaches. So another characteristic I'm saying, number six here is clarity clarity this is what this is about letting them clearly understand the truth of the gospel message now i mentioned last week i've started reading these letters by john newton who uh, wrote amazing grace and they're just so rich he he understood his um, one of his main spiritual gifts as letter writing to encourage others in the faith and he also wrote to unbelievers i think i mentioned this last week but i'm just just saying it again One of the things that has impressed me so much about John Newton as I'm reading these letters, he's writing this letter to his brother-in-law. He writes many letters to his brother-in-law who is not a believer. And the two things that come across as you read these letters, you know, I I guess it's okay to to read these things when it's so so many centuries later, but a lot of them are really personal. I I mean, we just don't have this collection of letter writing today. It's kind of a, a lost art. But I'm reading these intimate letters between John Newton and his brother-in-law. And two things come across in those letters that that John Newton is communicating to his brother-in-law. One is how much John Newton loves his brother-in-law. There is a tenderness and compassion and love that is communicated. And the other thing that is communicated is the gospel really clearly and the consequences that you are in for rejecting this gospel. So both of these things are communicated. I love you, brother-in-law. I love you. And you are in danger. And I'm letting you know, this is what is going on here as well with this shaking the dust in verse 11. All right, we're just about done. Verses 12 and 13 we have left. Look at verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. So they're going out in pairs, and their message is a message of repentance. Uh, A seventh 
quality or characteristic of missional Christianity is that there is a theology, and our theology is the gospel. And the gospel, our main theology, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what is of first importance, what is of most importance is the gospel. Not baptism, not which Bible translation you use, uh, not, not what kind of music you sing, whether you use an organ or whether you use a guitar, or whether you have drums or not. What is most important, the Bible says, is the gospel. That Christ Jesus died as our sin substitute and rose on the third day. This is what is of first importance. And so missional Christianity is going to have a theology, and at the center of that theology is what is most important, the gospel message. Now, interestingly, at this point, the careful reader of Mark's gospel knows Jesus hasn't died yet. Jesus hasn't risen yet. So what is the message that they're taking? Let's look at verse 13. Um, Actually, it's in, it's in verse 12, and we'll get to verse 13 in just a second. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. Here's the theology. He's, pre- he's preaching a ministry, the, the, the going out in pairs, they are preaching this theology of repentance. It's similar to John the Baptist's ministry because Jesus has yet to actually die as our sin substitute and be raised on the third day. So they are pointing people to Jesus and calling people to repentance. Missional Christianity has theology within it and then finally verse 13 they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them what we see in verse 13 we see two things we see they are driving out demons and that they are healing the sick we see the spiritual and we see the physical we see that god is concerned about the whole being and he has given apostolic power and authority to these 12 as they go out in pairs in order to take care of people in a holistic way. And so the final, uh, the final quality of missional Christianity is totality. And by that I mean that we care for the entire person as Christians. We don't just simply care for their, what they believe or what's in their heads or in their hearts, their doctrine, that's important. But we also care for their life and for their body, for their physical well-being. We love people in those ways as well. One commentator writes this. He says, they declared that it was God's intention to apply salvation to man and his wholeness with all that he is. This is important. And I think we sometimes can downplay, my perspective is we can sometimes downplay the importance of, of physical well-being and that God is concerned with that as well as spiritual. Now, one day, those of you that are are uh, getting up there in age, and I've got uh, quite a few banged up things going on in me here, uh, we wonder sometimes as we, as we age about God's concern for our bodies and the pain that we are experiencing. And when that happens, folks, what we need to do is we need to preach to ourselves that one day, we are going to have this glorified body that is going to be perfect. And it is coming. <laughs> There's my amen. Les finally showed up right here in the front. One day, our bodies are going to be made new. Our souls are going to be made new. We are going to have no more bad decisions to make. All the decisions that we have in the new heavens and the new earth are going to be right and beautiful and glorious. And our bodies are going to work. That's what we are looking forward to. So as we make disciples, we communicate that God cares for your thoughts, your hearts, your mind, your, your psychology, your, your, your spirit. But he's also concerned for your body. And one day we have the hope of resurrection that our bodies will be made new and perfect. 
close uh, today with a quote from a guy. He has a really good first name, Ernst. Um, Ernst uh, Keisman. He, he, uh, he writes this. See, he, he's talking about Paul's emphasis on the body here. He says, for Paul, it is all important that the Christian life is not limited to interior piety. It's not just about what's in our heads and in our hearts and our holiness inside. One of the most remarkable and at the same time least known sentences of the apostle runs, the body belongs to the Lord and the Lord to the body. Referring to the human body here. This isn't talking about the body of Christ. The human body belongs to the Lord and the Lord to the body. He goes on and he says, Paul does not mean man's relation to himself, but that piece of the world which we ourselves are and for which we bear responsibility because it was the earliest gift of our creator to us. Your body, my body, is the earliest gift of our creator to us. With that, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to help us in this way. Lord, we need your help in this way of making fishers of men, of women, of boys and girls, of making disciples. Lord, we just acknowledge another time of confession this morning that we often forget about the mission that you have given us in life. And we think that our mission is parenting alone or our job that we have alone or our mission is having fun in retirement or our, our mission is to do really well in school. And Lord, we pray that, that we would do all of those things. But above all of those things, Lord, we would recognize that there is a mission that transcends whatever stage of life that we're in. And that mission is to make disciples, to make fishers of men. Help us as parents to do that with our children. Help us to do that as people who live in homes with our neighbors who don't know Jesus. Help us as people who go to work to be Christ and to display the gospel in the way that we interact with others and when possible to actually share that gospel. Help us to be resilient to be bold. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.